0: I'm always fascinated when celebrities give us a window into their personal lives. And I don't just mean the way they're presented to us by the media, where they give us views inside of their incredible homes or their luxurious lifestyles. What I'm talking about is when they give us a window into themselves. When the veneer of success and wealth and celebrity start to crack... Their lives are the object of the world's desire. But if you listen closely, they themselves will tell you a different story. So here's story number one. Tom Brady did an interview with 60 Minutes back in 2005. He'd already accomplished more in his career at that point than most players could ever dream of. He'd already won three Super Bowls. He'd just been voted America's most eligible bachelor, and he hadn't even turned 28 yet. He was living the life of his dreams, and yet, that was the problem. Therein lies the rub. The interviewer started asking him rapid fire questions. So can you go out to restaurants? Brady said, sometimes, you know, If I feel like I have enough energy to put a happy face on. But I don't always feel that way, though. You seem like the reluctant star. Isn't this what you always wanted? You're right, Brady said. But I didn't realize it came with all this other baggage, though. You're the most eligible bachelor in America. Brady says, yeah, it's flattering. But it doesn't make me sleep any better at night. And then Brady gets to the heart of it, and he says, you know, why do I have three Super Bowl rings, yet I still feel like there's something greater out there for me? Maybe a lot of people would just say, hey, man, it's what it is. You've reached your goals, your dreams. But me, I think God, it's got to be more than this. So then the interviewer asks, so what's the answer? Brady says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I love playing football. And I love playing quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. Here's story number two. Since the man time canoe trip is coming up this week, the canoe trip now reminds me of Anthony Bourdain. If you don't know who Anthony Bourdain was, he was a chef turned author, turned television host, turned international celebrity. And I had followed his career. I traveled around the world with him for 15 years on a show, No Reservations. I still remember the first place he took me. And I always admired his curiosity about the world. Now, he was willing to sit down and talk with anyone over a meal. His curiosity about different types of people and just learning different types of cultures and just simply hearing their story. He ate with the poor in huts, he ate with politicians in halls of power. His life was one where the world opened its doors to him and invited him to sit at every table. And on June 7th, 2018, he was at the top of his career and sitting on top of the world. And on June 8th, 2018, he was found in his hotel room in Paris. He was 61 years old, and he took his own life. He was found by his best friend, Chef Eric repair And when we were on the canoe trip that day, I went into my tent to check my phone, and my friend had texted me and asked me if I'd heard about what had happened. I remember just staring at the phone thinking, is this real? It was such a shock to me personally, and I actually really took his passing very hard. You can have dinner with three people. Go. For me, Jesus, Johnny Cash, Anthony Bourdain. It's that simple. And yet, this news came and it was so shocking. And I remember sitting with Jake Abbott by the river. And we were talking about how he had seen everything in this world. He ate at Michelin star restaurants all around the globe for free. Why? Because he's Anthony Bourdain. He was known by name in virtually every country. In this world. And he'd experienced everything this world had to offer, yet it was still not enough to satisfy that deep hunger in his soul. All of that wasn't enough for him to be willing to face the next day. So, what about you? What are your desires? What do you dream about? What do you long for? What is it that seems like it would make life so much better if you had it? These stories can be so disorienting to us, even as Christians. Because even though we will say and confess, we know nothing in this world can satisfy us, we know that we still cling to the belief that it can. And these stories are certainly disorienting to the world, especially Bourdain's, because it's haunting to think that you could come to the end of everything that this world has to offer to you and you will still be just as hungry as when you started. But you would be driven to a much deeper despair because you would know that you came to the end of this world and there's nothing left for you. That's haunting. But you know that story. That's the story the Bible tells you. The Bible is not silent on stories like these. The story of the Bible is, after all, a story of desire. It's the story of a desire of a God who wants to dwell with us, with you. Adam and Eve wanting a piece of fruit in the garden. Humanity wanting power and glory and immortality at Babel. Abraham wanting a son. Jacob just wanting the love of his father. Israel wanting freedom from Egypt and food in the wilderness. Your life is one of desire because the Bible teaches you something very simple and yet so significant about us that we were created with an infinite, endless desire within us. And just like Bourdain's story shows us, that desire can turn deadly. And I don't mean it can turn deadly when we desire fame and fortune and excess. No, we have desires within us that can be just as deadly when all we want is something as simple as something to eat. That's the story of the fall. That's the story of humanity. That's the story of Israel. That's the story of us. And today we come to the end of the story in the wilderness in this series. And next week we're going to enter the promised land with Joshua and the second generation as God prepares to go to war. But today we have one final week with this first generation in the wilderness. Did you notice how their story ends the same way that it started? If you remember a few weeks back in Exodus 16, when we first entered into the wilderness with Israel, we saw them grumbling about God, about having no food, and longing to return to Egypt. And here we are, years later, and they're still grumbling about food and longing to return to Egypt. And I chose this story as the last story in the wilderness because it's a fitting end to the story of this generation. They never... Learn to what to do with those desires within them. They never learned to accept God's place in their lives. They never learned to embrace His promises and all that He was for them. They never learned to embrace His purposes. And in the end, they died in the wilderness just as hungry as they started. And they never learned what, where to find their satisfaction because they always wanted the wrong thing. So our passage picks up where Israel had set out towards the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and it says the people became impatient on the way. Once again, they started grumbling against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food. What's that worthless food? It's the manna. That God gave to them each and every morning. It was the miracle that God gave them to eat every day. And they literally say, this manna is a curse. Now this complaint isn't anything new, is it? It's literally word for word every time we see it. And this time is all the same. Word for word from what we've seen before. It's on repeat the story of Israel in the wilderness is a song, then this complaint is the chorus. And we see it over and over again. Israel keeps saying, if life just looked this way, if we just had that, if we could just go there, then everything would be great. If everything could just look this way, then everything would be okay, and life would be so much better. We come to this same old complaint once again. Why? Because the Bible keeps showing it to us over and over again, because they're supposed to see something in it. And Israel's complaint is more than just having a bad attitude and being hangry, of which I am guilty of on a regular basis. The story is showing us how sin operates. It's showing us how sin infects our desires with a deadly disease called discontent. It's the deadly disease of thinking how much life would be better if I finally got what I wanted. We're all guilty of thinking that, aren't we? I am. We all are. And yet to that, the Bible would say, really, life would just be so much better if it looked how you wanted it to look and you had what you wanted to have. What about Eden? Didn't Adam and Eve have everything they could ever want living in paradise? Doesn't the story of Brady and Bourdain remind us that it's not true either? It echoes this garden story and says that maybe what you don't have isn't your greatest problem. Adam and Eve had everything and yet everything falls apart because they were bitten by a snake. And that snake comes along and he twists God's word and he says, did God really say not to eat of that tree? Did he really say that? And then what does he do? What does he go after? The Bible tells us that this serpent is crafty. He's subtle. He says no. No. God told you not to eat of it because he knows that if you do, you'll become like him. Great and glorious and awesome and splendor. If he's so good, why wouldn't he want that for you? Sounds to me like maybe he's holding you back. Is he really leading you to life? No, he's keeping you back from reaching your potential because think of how great life would be. Sounds to me like maybe he doesn't want good things for you. It sounds to me like maybe he can't be trusted. And the serpent goes right after those infinite desires within them. And he poisons them. And he sinks his fangs deep into those desires. Desires for power and authority and glory and control and life and autonomy. And he poisons them with discontent and the promise that life would look better on their own terms. And whenever that poison takes its effect, discontent grows in their heart. And when that discontent spread, it corrupted and poisoned their entire view of everything, of God, of themselves, and each other. It poisoned their thoughts that what God had said is bad for them, and they wanted what was best. It poisoned their thoughts that now... God is a threat to their welfare. God is holding them back from real life. Now, God is the problem. And you see how quickly and radically this disease of discontent reshaped how they see everything. Because when God confronts Adam and says, Adam, what have you done? Adam says, it was the woman that you gave me." It's the circumstances that you put me in. You are to blame for this. That's some venom. And so if we fast forward to the wilderness and we see this same story playing out. Israel's complaining isn't just a bad attitude. They've been bitten by a snake long before God ever sent snakes into their camp. Their desires were poisoned with discontent and infected how they viewed reality and caused them to see everything backwards. Because do you see it? Instead of Egypt being a prison and the place of their oppression, they say, Egypt was great. Let's go back. Instead of that manna being God's miraculous provision for them, they say, actually, it's a curse. Do you remember everything that we had in Egypt? Instead of God leading them to new life, they say, God, why are you out here leading us to our death? Instead of trusting in God's promises and a home for them, they say, God, you are the problem. We know what's better. And we want to go home. We want to go back to Egypt. That discontent wasn't just a moment of a bad attitude. It had poisoned how they understood their entire existence and everything around them. It poisoned how they understood the world, their circumstances, their purpose, their place, their God. It's why discontent is so toxic, because it spreads. It metastasizes into everything. Is your life poisoned with discontent right now? where a deep dissatisfaction has become so toxic in its shape, how you understand your life and everything and everyone around you. Where every inconvenience is an insult, and you burn with anger, the traffic is always horrible, the service at this restaurant is awful. I don't understand why people can't just do this or do that, and why people just can't do what seems so obvious... And maybe it's discontent in your job that just spills over into everything and onto everyone else in life. You're frustrated when you leave in the morning and you're angry by the time you get home at night. House still isn't clean, so what have you been doing all day? We blow up at the kids. I don't care if you had a hard day. My day was much harder. Maybe it's discontent in your marriage that infects how you view the attention from a coworker or the attention from someone at the gym discontent with your house, your car, your quality of life that infects how you view your money and needing new things all the time and always craving the lives of others. The disease of discontent will convince you that the problem is always out there. And it's in my circumstances. It's that person. It's because I don't have this. It's because I don't have that. It's because I have to deal with this situation. That list goes on ad nauseum. And healing my friends, can only be found when we are willing to say the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. It's me. I am the problem. And that's exactly what God wanted to show Israel. And it's exactly what he wants to show us. So what does he do? He sends some snakes. Verse 6 says that the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and bit them, and many people died. These serpents are literally called the fiery ones, the seraphim, most likely because of what happens when they bite you. Your body would burn and ache with a raging fever and an unquenchable thirst. And to the critic or the skeptic or just the casual reader, God doing this may seem harsh or cruel at first glance. Like God is just being petty and saying, how dare you do that? Here's some snakes. Take that. But that's not true. So why does God send these snakes? It's because he wants to heal them. That's why. Have you ever known a cancer patient that was undergoing treatment, that complained about how mean and cruel the doctor was for making them go through radiation and chemo? No. Of course not. Because they know it's necessary if they want to be healed. The doctor told them, if you want to be healed, you have to get bit by a scalpel. And radiation and chemo are going to light your body on fire. It's the only way that you can be healed. It's the only way that we can deal with the poison that's raging inside of you. And to that, they say, okay. If that's what it takes to be healed, then do your worst, doctor. And God is doing the same thing. He's the good healer, He knows the treatment for His people. He knows the severity of the disease, and he knows the severity of the solution. Because what's the real effect of all of these snakes? The people turn to God. These snakes are what cause them to turn to God, and they run to Moses and say, We have sinned and spoken against the Lord and against you. And they ask for Moses to pray on their behalf for their healing. It's these snakes that awaken them to the reality of their sin. And they finally say, we are the problem. We have sinned. And we have spoken against the Lord. And so then God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent. To hang it on a pole. And then anyone that looks at the bronze serpent would be healed. That's it. All they had to do was look at it, and they would be healed. Now, why a snake on a pole? It's such a curious symbol, isn't it? Like, why didn't he have Moses just offer sacrifices like a bull or a ram or a sheep, like we might expect to cover the people's sin? Why have him make a bronze serpent on a pole, and lift it up high for everybody to see? Well, for two reasons. One, it's a symbol of victory. It's a symbol of victory. Many of you perhaps remember when I told the story of how I killed a 47-foot snake in my garage. And what did I do? I lifted that bad boy as high as I could see, so Melissa could see it. So Asher could see it. So when he her by, happening to walk by, wondering why this grown man is crying and carrying around a snake, so they could see it. That's what you do when you kill a snake, is you lift it up high. This bronze serpent is a symbol of victory over the vipers. It's a symbol of God's power. But secondly, it gives us a picture of what repentance really is. Because as the people that were bitten, by this snake, were lying there in agony when they heard what God had provided for them to be healed. Looking at that bronze serpent was an act of trust and repentance. Looking at that symbol of victory in God's power was them saying, God, I trust that you can kill what's killing me. I trust that you can kill what's killing me. You are my healer. And the people looked, and they were healed. But the sad part of this story is that this generation never got out of the wilderness. After the report that we looked at from the spies last week, the people cowered in fear, and they refused to enter into the promised land. And because of that, God said that every adult from age 20 years and up would never enter the promised land. And he says that they will wander in the desert until the last of them died, which meant that they had over three decades left from this point moving forward of wandering in the wilderness. And God would wait until the last of them died, and then God would take their children into the promised land without them. And yet here this moment is, God is still being gracious to them, inviting their trust, but they never wanted to learn to trust that God was their life and their satisfaction. They never wanted to trust that God had purposes and plans for them. They trusted God for this moment, yes, that God could heal that venom in their bodies, but they never learned to trust that he could heal that venom in their souls. And in the end, discontent is written on the gravestone of this generation, and they die in the wilderness just as hungry as they started. It's a tragic story. And the discontent of this generation foreshadowed all the generations after them. Because the discontent is just getting started. Israel never wanted what God wanted. They were never satisfied with what God offered. They wanted to look like the nations looked. They wanted to live like the nations lived, to do what they did, to have what they had. They wanted other gods and believed in other promises because they were so discontent with the ones that they were given. And they never learned to trust that there was a deep venom in their souls that needed to be healed. And this story fades into the background of Israel's history It's a very short, obscure story in the middle of Numbers. And yet it hangs over Israel as they move forward into their future. And then it turns up centuries later in a secret conversation that happened late at night. When a man named Nicodemus came to Jesus. Nicodemus was a leader of the Pharisees. He was a ruler of the Jews, which which meant that he was probably a ruling member of the Sanhedrin. And he came by night because for him to be seen with Jesus was dangerous. But he came anyway. Because he had desires. Even in the midst of all of his education, his power, his privilege, his status, his position in Israel. He was still looking for more. And he came and found the light in the darkness. And just to make their conversation short, Jesus turned Nicodemus' world upside down. Jesus told him about life from on high, life from another world that's coming into this world. He told Nicodemus about ionic, unending, kingdom life, being given by a power that you can't control that comes and goes as it pleases. And to have this life Something has to happen to you that you cannot do to yourself. So Nicodemus says, how can this be? How can I have this life that you talk about? Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up in the wilderness of this world, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Because this world has been bitten by a snake. And one day soon, God will lift up his symbol of victory. He says, I will be lifted up so that healing will go to the nations and God will kill what's killing this world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Nicodemus, you want this life? You have to look to me. You have to look to me, high and lifted up. Because it's the cross of Jesus where God lifts up his symbol of victory over the snake bite of Satan, sin, and death. It's through the cross that God offers healing into the world for all who just look upon Jesus. Because at the cross, Jesus became sin for us. He was poisoned so that we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? It means that you, my friend, can be healed and have unending, ionic, kingdom, eternal, infinite life. Yet at the same time, we have to say, what does that really mean, though? We kind of know that part. But what does it really mean to look to Jesus? Jesus. Because maybe the first thing that comes to your mind is that we we look to the cross and we remember that Jesus forgives us. And we remember that Jesus died for our sins and he paid the price for our sins. That's absolutely 100% true. But there is far more to the cross than that. Yes, we look to Jesus as our Savior. But have you learned to look to Jesus as your satisfaction? Is he your satisfaction? Day in and day out. Is he the satisfaction of your life? Is he the object of your greatest desire? Because the discontent within us means that our lives will always be driven by what we don't have. And Jesus comes along and talks about healing is found when we start laying hold of what we do have. It's learning to look to Jesus who heals us from that disease of discontent that drives us and shapes us and breeds chaos and unrest within us. And Paul teaches us how to look to Jesus in a much deeper way. He teaches us how to look to him for our satisfaction and to find contentment. And the funny thing is Paul tells us and teaches us about contentment, writing from prison of all places. He says in Philippians, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I've learned the secret, and it's this I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus is the secret, the secret of the ages, the secret that everyone and everything has been looking for since time immemorial. Paul says that he's learned that he is to be content in all things, whether he's got a little, whether he's got a lot. He's learned how the sin in his heart is working, whether he has a little or whether he has a lot. That sin in his heart is always pulling his desires In a million different directions, wanting a million different things, wanting a million different outcomes. And how that sin produces the discontent that only pulls him away from God into jealousy and bitterness and lust and greed and impatience and dissatisfaction. And he's learned the secrets of not being driven by every desire and craving within him. He's learned the secrets of not being driven by what he doesn't have. He's learned to lay hold of what he does have. It's Jesus. It's looking to him in all of those moments, high and lifted up and saying, I trust that you can kill what's killing me. You are my healer. You are my strength. You are my satisfaction. And what's the effect of that? Well, finding Christ brought a contentment into Paul's heart that even while he's sitting in the wilderness of a prison, he's free. He's free maybe you feel trapped in the prison cell of a discouraging job or a disappointing marriage or a debilitating body or discontent in your relationships or just dissatisfaction with the way that life turned out. And all that discontent has poisoned how you view life. It's infected how you see everything around you. And no matter what, what you do or how hard you try, You're always just as hungry as when you started. And what's Paul telling you? He's telling you that when you learn to look to Jesus, there is a contentment that's available to you that is profoundly and fundamentally not circumstantial. It has nothing to do with what you have. It has nothing to do with what you don't have. It has nothing to do with what's raging on around you. It doesn't matter if you are stuck behind prison bars the contentment of Christ is not circumstantial because there is a power that can heal the poison of discontent so that you might know that peace of contentment. And so, where do you start with all that? Well, you've got to start by recognizing that you've been bitten in the first place. We have to be willing to see how sin has poisoned our hearts with the discontent that's spread. And to how we see everything and shape so much of our thoughts, our desires, our actions and how we spend our energy, and all of it points us away from Jesus, not to him. Which means that you have to be willing to finally say that the problem isn't out there. It's not that person or this situation. the problem is me. And I'm powerless to do anything about it. My heart is poisoned. And it's then that you're ready to look to Jesus and say, I trust that you can kill what's killing me. Give me the strength to just face today. Be my strength. Be my healer. Be my satisfaction. And I know that, you know, contentment doesn't have a lot of bright lights around it. It may not have been at the top of the list of things that you were looking for when you walked in this morning. And yet Christ is inviting you into the deep end. And that contentment, looking to Jesus, takes work. Every single day. You have to do it every day. You have to do exactly what Mark talked about last week. You have to fight. You have to fight. Jesus is your promised land. But do you want it? Is it worth it? Certainly Paul seems to say so. And just think about how much your life would change for a second if contentment really flooded into your heart. How much time would you be given back? How much would that change and impact time with your spouse and with your kids? How would that change how you spent your free time And not searching for something new to make you feel new. How would that impact the quality of your marriage and the quality of your commute? How might that calm all of those anxieties in your heart? How could that lead to no longer living with that pit in your stomach? The truth is, you'd be living a new life. And that life is available to you. And I started this sermon with two stories of two men that had experienced everything that this world had to offer. And one of them was still looking for something more. And the other had completely given up hope that he'd ever find it. And yet we end with the story of a man who'd had everything taken away from him, sitting in prison. And yet he literally says, I could care less. Because I have found everything. Everything. I have found the secret. And he says that secret is available to you. That satisfaction is available to you, but you got to know where to look. For the glory of Christ and the life of the world, let's pray.